over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We are in the 34th book of our series in the big book cover to cover, and today we enter the seventh of the 12 minor prophets, the little book of Nahum. It's three short chapters, it is 47 short verses, and you know already that this is a story after the book of Jonah. So the book of Jonah, we have the reluctant prophet, probably 100 to 150 years earlier, Jonah was tasked to go to Nineveh and preach this, what we call the gospel, for just for common language. He was to preach repent, or they were to face judgment. He didn't want to do it, of course, you know the story well, and at the end of the story, we can do good math, over 600,000 people turn to Yahweh Elohim. It's an amazing, in fact, from my estimation, there's no, quote, revival, close quote, like this in the Old Testament. More people respond in faith to Yahweh Elohim as a result of Jonah's ministry in Nineveh than anything else we have on record. And at the end of the book, he's depressed about it. Interesting story. Nineveh is an interesting chapter because it is a serious capital. And for you to understand this, let me give you a little bit of a background. It was surrounded by 100-foot walls. You understand that the top of those walls were three chariots abreast. And I can't give the precise dimensions on it, but this is not a little tiny wall of you know, cinder blocks. This is a massive wall, hand-laid stone that could sustain that type of weight and activity. There were 200 towers set principally around the wall for vistas and overview and defense of the city. If that wasn't enough, there was a 150-foot wide moat that was 60 foot deep. There's no record it had sharks in it, but nevertheless, it was intimidating. Uh, it's an impregnable fortress. It is a beautiful fortress in its highlight. The grandeur of this place would rival uh, anything in the Middle East. This, this would be uh, far more uh, pretentious, amazing uh, accomplishment than, than Jerusalem at its zenith. This is the Washington, D.C. times 10 of the Middle East in the day. And it is an enormous city complex. The Tigris River surrounds it in places. I've had friends that have traveled there in, in recent years. And, of course, the, the, the rivers don't change. When we take it to Israel, mountains, valleys, water sources don't move. So these water sources, there you see the little towers, the little parapets that would go around the city. So you get a sense of how big this place was. Um, it's hard for us to comprehend, uh, but this was a massive operation, and it was huge in power as well. Now, when Nineveh is response to Jonah's message, and this is about 760 BC, I don't like to inundate you with dates, but I want to show you how quickly things change. So about 760 BC, the Assyrians then regress. They go back to their old ways. The message is a bit of a question mark. Who was the message given to? Was it given to the Ninevites or was it given to Jewish people 
who were in that area. And this is one of these age-old questions. If we read something in the Bible, the first audience heard it, but it had other people were impacted by it as well. So Nineveh has this conversion experience. In 40 years or less, they regress completely back under a man named Sargon II. And he's going to go and destroy Samaria. Samaria, you may or may not remember, is northern Israel is in the north, Judah's in the south. Always keep that in mind. I before J as you think about the alphabet. Israel in the north. So this is the northernmost part of the Jewish kingdom, if you will, the monarchy, the divided monarchy. And at that time, um, there were 10 tribes that were living in that area. And during uh, Sargon's reign, those 10 tribes are dispersed. Then comes Sennacherib. This is a line right in connection with 2 Kings chapter 18. Sennacherib is the most powerful leader at the time, and he is going to uh, go after Jerusalem. When he does this, you remember King Hezekiah is reigning at that time. And Hezekiah and the Lord had this big convo about what to do with the Assyrian influence coming in. And those of you who have gone to Israel with me, we stop in the old city at Hezekiah's wall. And that is about two chariots wide at that particular section. It was wider in its earlier years. But you also, if you went to Israel, you probably did Hezekiah's tunnel. And that's when he brought the water in from the springs and brought them down to the, to the uh, pools of Siloam, which the story of John 9 is based on. So Hezekiah is the reigning king at that time. It's about 701 B.C. So we've got 59 years from the time that Jonah preaches, just call it 50 years, this is all changing. Um, some of you um, will remember also in that old city, there's a, there's a big placard that has been excavated, and it shows you the, the sort of the, the edge of the city wall at that time. And then when you step back and see how things are built up, you go, unless you would have excavated, you would have never found that wall. And when you think of Nineveh, this is even more at issue of how this city is discovered. Um, we fast forward then, and we have Nahum, about 660 B.C., so that's just a few years later, and Assyria is at the zenith of their power, and the highest wealth, power, intimidation is under a man named Asher Banipal, Asher Banipal, and that's about 30 years of his reign. He exceeded all other Assyrian kings, uh, and I, I can't give you a, a good parallel other than to say the Middle East is a whole lot bigger than the U.S., and you've got a Washington, D.C. that's a whole lot more powerful. And they've got wealth. They have military. They have slaves. They control the land. They're intimidating. And this is the time when Nahum comes on the scene. Nineveh is a lot more than a little fish story in the book of Jonah, in other words. Now, Ashurbanipal's sons were no match for the king. And we find this historically. You have these incredible leaders, whether they're monarchs or corporations, and it's really hard to follow them and eclipse what they've done. And his sons are no match for it. And there's a cryptic verse in chapter 1, verse 8, where it refers to an overflowing flood. Literally, the Tigris overflowed, and the Tigris flooded a part of that wall you saw. This is not disputed by liberal, anti-Christian scholars. No one disputes this. This, is not a, this didn't happen. This is a factual thing in history and archaeology. When the Tigris River broached part of the wall, uh, guess what happens? The Babylonians come in, and they invade it, they plunder it, they burn the city, they destroy it. So like the Roman Empire, when the Visigoths metaphorically come over the hill, the Roman Empire was the most powerful empire on the planet. 
And the Visigoths come in and dismantle it overnight. It's quickly these things, it takes hundreds of years to build an empire like the Assyrian Empire with the capital of Nineveh, but very quickly a broken wall, a flooded area, the Babylonians come in at the right time. In chapter 3, verse 11 of the little book Nahum, Nineveh is prophesied will be hidden. And this is the stuff of movies. Uh, We did not know where Nineveh was until 1842. So from the time that flood occurs and the Babylonians go in there and destroy it, we didn't know it existed. We knew it was somewhere on the map, but we didn't know where. And you can go today, and again, it's part of the Middle East and the occupation there. If you've studied anything about the Babylonian Hanging Gardens, I mean, this was a luxurious, incredible city in its zenith. And now it is an archaeological find that, again, no one disputes the historicity, the legitimacy that Nineveh was a real place. That's not in debate by anyone. The The problem with this is really no problem at all because think of how quickly any culture disintegrates. Think of our own great experiment we call America. And from where we started and where we are today, what was once immoral is moral. What was once illegal is legal. What was once a line in the sand is now has to be embraced and loved. And you can't just accept it. You've got to love it and and esteem it and celebrate it. And most of us who are a little older perhaps would think, yeah, I never thought I would live so long as to see something happen. Well, there's nothing new. There's nothing new. It's happened in antiquity, it happens today, and it will continue to happen. As now so Nineveh, because of their rampant immorality, God's going to come, and this time he's bringing judgment. Jonah brought a message of uh, repent or. Nahum brings a message, you're going to die. This is a capital C, cheery Michael Easley sermon. Uh, There's no good news in this book. The the good news is fragments of what we're going to read for others. This is a book of judgment. This is the sure and certain book of judgment that's going to happen to Assyria and their people. Um, We've talked a lot about chiasms. If you were in a sorority or fraternity, you might say chi omega, but in Greek it's key. It's the letter X. And again, just to remind you, X marks the spot, simplistically. The point of the structure is what is in the middle. Now, that's not hard and fast, but it gives you an idea. When I read the Bible and I study this stuff, uh, I'm always amazed that God superintends the Holy Spirit to make an author write something And yet the author has got style that transcends Shakespeare. Extraordinary example of the wisdom of biblical literature, of the craftsmanship and the Holy Spirit's influence. So you remember A at the top and A prime at the bottom are parallel statements. And they are so neat and tidy. Sometimes we force these on the Bible. This one is so neat and tidy, it's pretty hard to miss and the reason I wanted to show it to you. So AA prime, we have the Assyrian king is taunted by God, literally, and Judah is told to celebrate. I'm going to bring judgment on them. So you, you party, don't worry about this. I've got this in control. And it closes with the same parallel. Israel, Assyria is taunted and others are told to celebrate. BB prime is this dramatic call to alarm. And again, verse chapter 3 and 14 and following, a dramatic call to alarm. C is the taunt in both places. In chapter 2, it's about the lions, and he's taunting them for their power. And then in D and D prime, you have judgment is coming. And the middle is the oracle of woe or the woe article. It's going to be bad. 
So when you step back on a piece of literature and you look at 47 verses, that's pretty fascinating that someone could come up with that. And so I have to lean on the fact, yes, they were brilliant people, but uh, don't, don't look at the ancients as stupid. Don't look at the ancients as sort of, you know, Cro-Magnon developmentally. They were bright men and women. And so the Holy Spirit's influence in Nahum's pen comes through in this remarkable way. The theme of Nahum is, is pretty easy to pick out. And uh, Dr. Constable calls it a story of utter and irrevocable destruction. Utter and irrevocable destruction. Nahum is tasked to go explain to them what's going to happen. Is his audience primarily the Jew who is impacted by Assyria? Yes. Are the Assyrians hearing this? Without doubt. Their moral, their proud ways. Um, and again, secular and religious scholars have no problem with the legitimacy of the book of Nahum or the story of Nineveh and what happens to them. Uh, archaeology does nothing but confirm everything that they look at in the area of Nineveh. The second part of Nahum is unambiguous, is that God is indeed a God of wrath. And this is the hard part for Christians to handle. He is a God of wrath. Let me read the first three verses you can follow on the screen. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. And clouds are the dust between his feet. Each prophet, it's hard, it's hard to distill each prophet, but each prophet had a primary message. You might think of Isaiah was God's holiness. It was amazed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the story. Jeremiah sees God's judgment. We come to Ezekiel sees God's glory. And on it goes. And Nahum saw God's wrath. So it's a difficult message. Nahum's prophecy begins in these heavy terms of anger and wrath, and some translate it furious. That's a, actually a pretty good term. And this is hardly popular in our modern sensibilities of you know, God's loving and this sort of love wins Christian nomenclature that people have adopted, and God's kind and merciful, and even the shift from pulpits across America that are coming to open theism and almost the universalism, that God will change his mind in the end, he'll be merciful in the end. After all, what kind of God would do that? And this, this, it's a subterfuge, and we don't like to hear about the judgment of God. Nahum was tasked to go tell a people group, not only are you judged, there's no escape for you. It is a good thing to me that this judgment and justice rests on him and not human agency. At the end of the day, we, we can look at things, and those of us that like courtroom dramas, and maybe you like modern day trials, and you know the good guy and the bad guy, and you cheer when a conviction occurs, or, or maybe you think the person was uh, wrongly punished, wrongly, uh, justice was not executed properly. But remember, justice is a two-edged sword. I talk about this all the time. If you're gonna administer justice, you must cut the offender to give mercy to the offended. It's never a one-side sword. And that nomenclature becomes very popular in the medieval age is that the government was the judgment of God. It was the sword of God. 
Well, here you have God uh, acting out on this, and uh, people don't like it. So step back and say, it's a good thing God does that, and it's not left to man. How many times do men and women in a jury or a judge or a decision make the wrong decision? Our human anger rarely compares to God's anger. And this was an insight for me this week, studying this book uh, in some detail. Uh, God's anger is not aroused like yours and mine. What, what makes you angry? Um, the fourth question in the Bible, if memory serves me correctly, is when uh, that God asks man, is when he asks Cain, why are you angry? The, the, the transition from, you know, where are you? They've eaten the fruit and they're in hiding and shame and sin. Where are you in relationship to me? To the fourth question, why are you angry, was a short path. And Cain is mad. And it's a Always a good question to ask individually, what makes you and me angry? Sometimes we can be angry for the right reasons. My pride often gets in the way, and when I'm angry, it's because I want my way, or I feel threatened, or something unfair is happening and involves me or the ones I love, and the ones I love are me, and so I, I you know, get angry for all the wrong reasons. Um, God's anger is different. And this passage tells us in ways that are easy to miss. Number one, God... Anger is not quelled by revenge, but retribution. It's a very different attitude. We want the guy to go to jail who was the sex uh, perp. We want the guy who stole to you know, be punished for it. We want a person who abused another person to, you know, justice, he should go away forever. Maybe you believe in capital punishment. We want justice. God's anger is not quelled by revenge, but retribution. Retribution is a reckoning of bringing justice to those who deserve punishment. And you've got to be pretty high level to know this is what retribution looks like for this particular crime or sin. Wrath is an interesting word and probably one very few of us have ever looked at in detail. It really has the simple idea of I mean, keeping something, which doesn't make any sense. Wrath means to keep something. So you must see how the word is used to understand what it means. That's our rule of thumb. So in Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, he reserves wrath for his enemies. He's keeping wrath for a particular group, for a particular retribution. And the sense is, it suggests, unlike man, who what? We can't control our anger. When you get angry at your husband, at your wife, at your kids, at some injustice, some, some pundit on TV is saying something, maybe you follow people on, on Twitter and they say crazy things, and you get angry at them. Very few of us can, can whatever that trigger is for you, can you just turn it off? I'm not going to be mad. It's pretty hard not to knee jerk when we're mad at something. And interestingly, Nahum and scripture bears out that God reserves his wrath. So the first thing we see different is that the Holy Sovereign doesn't get mad and raged like we would at an injustice. He reserves that anger for the right distribution, the right time, the right way. In two verses that we've read, four different Hebrew terms flash out to explain to us this anger of God, this anger of Yahweh. And it's tied very tightly five times to the word Yahweh. Now, we're not supposed to say Yahweh because pious uh, Jews don't like it. It's, it's uh, 
we would say sacrilegious, they, they don't like the term, but this is what the Bible uses, so I'm sorry, but I like to use the word Yahweh. But when you look at these verses again, notice verse two, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord, and there we have El Yahweh, El for God and Yahweh for the Lord. Remember, if you use the New American Standard, when you have the capital L and then O-R-D, that's the word Yahweh. If it's L, lowercase O-R-D, that's uh, Adonai. And it's just a different way that the translators try to help us read the Bible. He's a jealous and avenging Elohim, Yahweh. Secondly, the Lord is avenging and wrathful, so we have Yahweh again. Third, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Four, uh, uh, fifth, the Lord is slow to anger. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. And four, excuse me. And then fifth, the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He's tying the Lord to this action so we don't miss it. It's overstating the case. God is a God of wrath. I know that's hard for you to swallow, he would say at that time. It's hard for us to swallow too. This is not, you know, we don't like to hear sermons on hell and God's anger, but it is the holy word of God, and he did not error in giving us the whole counsel. Just a couple of observations. The jealous and avenging God establishes his character. This is what his character is like. Remember, God's jealousy, again, is different from man's jealousy. We're jealous of all sorts of emotional things. God is jealous in a zealous way for his holiness and for his people. The second phrase, uh, the Lord is slow to anger. It's a striking contrast to man's anger. We're quick to anger. We're knee-jerk to anger. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He's holy and he's just, and he will at some point bring about justice. Well, Nahum wants the audience to know this is a wrathful, vengeful God if you're not aligned with him properly. Again, Tom Constable in his notes on the Bible, which I commend to you again and again and again, every book of the Bible, he's got a set of free PDF notes you can download. Just put constable and notes and you'll find them and download them as you go through books of the Bible. Keep them on your computer for future reference. But he aggregates all these commentaries in a beautiful way. It's very helpful. But he knows people are often controlled by their anger, but God controls his. That's a good line. People are often controlled by their anger, but God controls it. Again, we are different than God when it comes to our anger. Well, chapter 1 continues in verses 3 to 8 where Nahum explains God's anger in very easily understood examples for the ancients and for us. Verse 3, the Lord show, again, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. It's a simple metaphor. Uh, we can't control the whirlwind. We can't, I mean... The tornado that just came through uh, t Tennessee not long ago, no one can control that. And the author is saying, that's nothing to him. The clouds, the ominous clouds, that's just dust on his feet. It's a simple metaphor explaining these are nothing to God. Verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. If you've been to Israel and we've gone to Mount Carmel, it's the most lush, Fertile, beautiful spot, second only to Dan. And if you think of that area with all this water, all these olive trees, all this irrigation, all this cultivation, all the beautiful fields that are to this day used for crops, dried up and gone. That's what he's saying. God can do this. 
Mountains quake because of him. Hills dissolve. Easy pictures. They knew what earthquakes were. They knew what volcanic activity was. They knew what erosion was. They knew what a wadi is in the, in the southern area of Israel. When you have flash floods, it washes away mountains. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? Answer, no one. No one. You think you're a, a proud person? You, the hubris of the king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, Sennacherib, the hubris of these leaders, you think you can deal with God? No, you can't stand before his indignation. You can't stand before his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Now, here's the switch. The Lord is good. How can I read all that and think the Lord is good? Well, Nahum's explaining this is a God of wrath and vengeance, but understand his character. He's good, and he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Do not miss that. He knows his own. And when you step back on Scripture, 30,000 feet, the people God, quote, hates are the proud. Pure and simple. Wicked and pride always go together. He abhors the proud. And so this Ashurbanipal, Sennacherib, Sargon II, take your pick. They're proud of their accomplishments. They're proud as kings of the Middle East. They're proud that they can almost destroy Jerusalem, God's holy people, God's holy city. And Nahum is saying, no, the Lord's good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows, we might say, those who come to him. But with an overflowing flood, and again, this mentioned earlier, 1 verse 8, that was the Tigris River that literally happened to them. An overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. And Nineveh was gone. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. God's wrath demonstrates his love. And this, this is a hard thing for Christians to comprehend, but think of it as a two-sided coin. Love is a two-sided coin. Love on one side, wrath on the other. It's very helpful for me. Maybe it'll help you think about it this way. Um, what do you love? And so let's say, um, you know, we, we love uh, good families. We love when orphans have a place to live. We, we love when medical care can help somebody. When uh, a child has got a, a severely uh, problem about that cleft palate and comes over here for surgery and he or she can get some uh, reparative surgery and go home and, and have so much more hope and outlook in life on and on. We love good things. If you're a parent, you love when your children laugh. You love when they obey. You love when they're nice to their siblings. You love when your job goes well, when people treat you well. And you, we love those things. What do we get angry at? Sex trafficking, injustice, uh, a girl that's abused by an older male. You know, the, 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 the seedy side of us says, take him out back and shoot him. Stop the justice system, you know, innocent until proven guilty. If they're guilty, just get rid of them. I mean, maybe you disagree with me, but I have no tolerance for that. There's certain things that are wrong. Now, my anger administered would not be right. God's anger administered correctly is what we depend on. What makes you and me angry? Now step back. If God's a loving, holy, perfect judge, what does he love? He loves when his people follow him. He loves when they obey his commands. He loves when they live out what it means to be the chosen people of God. What does he hate? 
he's going to judge that. It's two sides of the same coin. We have to dismiss the idea of love the way humans think about love primarily and think about it ethically and relationally. He's going to love those who are called according to his purpose. Those are his people, his chosen people, the ones he's going to die for in the person of Jesus Christ. And he hates those who are the opposite of that, who are hubris, pride, elevate themselves. Um, again, this tandem, you hear me say this all the time. When I get, I get concerned when people say, I can never love a God who, fill in the blank. I can never love a God who allows AIDS, who allows uh, pedophilia, who allows, you know, fill in the blank. I can never love a God who allows wars, uh, etc. What we're saying on one part is, I want to make God in my image. But part of it's true because what they're saying is, I can't love a God that's not just. Why are crime shows such a popular, alluring, you know, whether it's serial on the podcast, why are crime shows so compelling to the heart of man? We want justice. Something sewn deep into us. If something was wrong, we want it right. Who killed this person? How can the guilty go unpunished and the innocent go punished? How can the victim live with not knowing this? We talk about closure, your closure all the time, right? There's got to be closure for this family. What ha- we find a child's remains and we go, oh my word, how could this happen? Who did this? We must find justice for this family. Two-edged sword. You got to punish the guilty to vindicate the victim. So the challenge becomes for us to, to look at it. Um, let, me, let me just say it this way. What inflames our anger may reveal what we love. What makes you angry might tell me what you love. Now, we can love the wrong things. We have to acknowledge that. But in the main, if something happens that gets you really ticked off, it's because you care. Right? Don't overthink this. Can we now think of God's mercy as love and wrath as the same coin? If he loves something, he's not going to tolerate injustice forever. Now, the problem is we have our economy of time and God has his, and they're not the same. Sorry, news break, they're not the same. We want it to happen now, our way, our lifetime. I mean, these horrible stories where parents lose a child, we never know what happens to the child, we, our heart breaks for them, it grieves for them. Uh, it's just a miserable existence, a living death. Why, Lord, why? And we would go through a normal routine. You got to step back, say, I'm finite, I'm a human, I'm a sinner, I'm proud. It's not my way, it's his way. I have to sit in that and repent and be okay with that. That which inflames my anger hopefully reveals what I love. Henry Ward Beecher, who was a, a famous preacher of another day gone by, wrote, a person who does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good. I like that. You have to be careful with it. Don't take it too far. But if you don't know how to be angry, you don't know how to be good. Because what instigates and inflames your anger is probably something that's wrong. Well, Nahum's a difficult book. God's wrath is sure, um, God ultimately judges the proud, and the differentiation is the humble. Jesus addresses this, as does James, and I close with these two verses. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. By the way, the Pharisees were the summation of hubris. The Pharisees were proud, religious, pious, uh, protecting people. And Jesus says to them, Matthew 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And? Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. 
You put yourself and your agenda and your priority ahead, you're going to be humbled. You're going to learn the hard way. You humble yourself, I'm going to exalt you. And finally, James says it very well. Likewise, James chapter 4, verse 6. He gives greater grace. I love that. You don't see grace modified often in the New Testament. He gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We live in a culture that um, accentuates personality. We've talked about this in recent weeks. The I, me, my that we're all pulled into. My way, what I want to do, I mean my, I mean my. And that's a tension we have to live with. We wake up in the morning looking out at the world through I mean my. That's who we are. We're people. But the growth of the believer in Jesus Christ is to ask yourself, you know, are you, are you arrogant or are you humble? It's pretty baseline. And if you think of that from God's wrath, who's he going to love? The humble. Who's he going to be ticked with? The arrogant. The I wills of Satan, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will. That hurled him into, into hell. It's the most base issue. In, I mean, when, when Adam and the woman took the fruit, I will be like God, knowing good and evil. You could really distill it all back to one word, pride, which is an amazing theme in the Bible, is it not? Pride, the Bible is chalked through of admonitions to the proud. Oh, as a believer... Uh, I have to ask myself all week saying this, Michael, how proud, when are you proud? I'm not saying you're self-deprecating and you beat yourself and you, you know, cut yourself. I'm not saying that. Ego is an interesting thing. That's why marriage is good. Because your spouse will keep you grounded. That's why children are good, especially teenagers. Teenagers will really keep you grounded. But you also need Good friends and time in the word and time with him to know. When are you being arrogant? When are you being proud? This is a sub-sub lesson from the passage, but I think it's an important one. Love what God loves, and you're on good ground. Love what man loves, and you're on soggy ground. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.